You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. In the last episode of the Useless Information Podcast, I introduced you to 93-year-old Marvin Lautzenheiser, who in 1957 headed the FBI team that finally deciphered the hollowed-out nickel that contained a secret message to a Soviet spy who was hidden right here in the United States. Well, today Marvin continues telling his story, and that includes a discussion of his time as an FBI field agent in Charlotte, North Carolina, which includes making an arrest on his first day alone in the field, and some heartbreaking news that he had to share with the mother of a young child. Then, of course, we'll go on to discuss how his team finally decrypted the message hidden inside the nickel, why he believes Soviet defector Hay Hannon wasn't fully cooperative with the FBI, and since he was fully immersed in the case, why he feels that Tom Hanks' portrayal of attorney James B. Donovan in the movie Bridge of Spies was way off base. Well, all that and more is coming up in part two of what I've titled The Crypt Analyst. I am Steve Sildman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless information. Now, before I begin, I just want to thank everyone for all the kind words they have passed on to me regarding the first part of my interview with Marvin. And I hope you'll find part two equally enjoyable. I think you'll actually like it more. Now, again, Marvin spoke to me over the phone, so the recording quality is not the best, but I have done my best to filter out all the heavy breathing, the pops, clicks, and so on. I really am not the best editor. Now, I'd estimate that this edited version was originally about two and a half hours long, so there are some major edits here, and I'll occasionally jump in with a bit of narration. And you'll recognize those by the same beep that I used in part one. Now, if you recall in the previous episode, Marvin had completed both his FBI cryptanalysis and field training, and he was informed that he's being sent to Charlotte. So let's listen in as Marvin continues his story, beginning with his arrival in Charlotte. The first day out, actually, it wasn't a day out. We went around. They took us around and found apartments for us or housing, rental housing for the families to come in because nobody's family was there at this time. And uh, so we went around, and I found a duplex, which was just scarcely large enough for my family, but it was I could afford it. And uh, after we found our place, then we were dropped off. I was to go back to the office. But there was a little bit of humor in my assignment. The first night we got into the hotel, they made arrangements for us to arrive and we all flew down. Four of us in my class went down to Charlotte. And we were all put up in the same suite at our hotel. We uh, 
just got into the door practically and the phone rang and somebody was asking for Agent Agent Watson Heiser. I can't get the right brogue, but anyway. So I took the phone and he said, I have information on this labor union problem here. It's very important and I will meet you. And he told me the directions where to go to meet him. And he says, and do not call at the office. This is just a super secret thing. I hung up and I called the office. <laughs> and they said, oh, that's just Charlie Still. He's playing a game with you. He said he picked it out because of your name. And so they said, just don't pay attention. I hung up and the phone rang. This is agent so-and-so. I told you not to call the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not the end of the story. The funny thing is, the next day, I reported to the office, and what do you believe I was assigned to Charlie Steele as my older agent to work with for the first two weeks? <laughs> and Charlie Steele was the greatest person he could be. He said, when's your family coming in? And I told him, he said, that'll be a couple of days before you can get in the apartment. And I said, yes. And, well, yeah, the furniture won't come until a couple of days later. He said, okay. And we went out to his place, and he slept and changed the bed sheets. He said, you're going to live with me until you get in your apartment. So the family came down, and we went out to his house. It was a big apartment. They were stay for about three nights. I thought that was the most wonderful thing he could have done. Very, very generous of him. So uh, then we went out to, uh, he had a radio car. We signed out, and he had me drive. Of course, I knew nothing about Charlotte, but I drove anyway. And after we had cleaned up his place, took a couple of hours. He was breaking all the rules, but it didn't matter. Then we drove out to Gastonia, and we went down the main street, and he said, let's go up and turn to the right here. Turn to the right, and it turns out it was the police station. So we went around, and he said, turn around, come around here to the side. And he said, don't park. He handed me some papers, and he said, uh, go find these people. And he said, I'll be here. I'll go upstairs and do some paperwork. He'll be back here at noon, and we'll go get lunch together. <laughs> so here I'm in a strange town, and I'm supposed to go find people. So I, when he got in the building, I found a place to park, and I went in and uh, asked if there was any place I could find the map of the city. Uh, anyway, I went in, and they said, well, the city hall is right here. It's in the same building. So I went there, and uh, I, for 25 cents, I bought a map of the city. And I started going, I got in the car, and I started going through the papers, and they, they were people who had not changed their address. Back then, we had a selective service, you know. Sure. And these people had moved. They could not be reached at their address, and so... The FBI was told to find them. That's how serious it was about selective service. So I looked at their last address, and I went there for the first guy, and I looked it up in the map, found my way to it. And, of course, he had moved, and the people there didn't know where he had moved, and so on. Down through the paperwork, and came noon, I was back, and we went to a nice little restaurant for lunch. I took him back to the police station, and he said, go look for some more. <laughs> that's the way the first two weeks went. That was my two weeks with an older agent. Uh, they were supposed to have me out and out cooking for people with him. He was supposed to be leading the way. Here I was doing it by myself. So then my two weeks were up, and I had a, a same thing. Well, this was an actual person who had been in this service. 
was in the service and he had left. He was away without leave, AWOL. And after 30 days of being AWOL, you'd be declared a deserter, which was really serious in like 10 years. If he, if he went back within the AWOL, within that time, I don't know what it was, one month or two months that you could be AWOL, but if he went back in there, he had so many days in the brig for each day he was out. And that was about the end of it. So it was imperative that we found him within that time frame. Otherwise, we'd have a really serious deserter case, and that was not nice. These people most mostly didn't intend to be deserters. Uh, but this guy was AWOL, and uh, I found out where his mother lived. His wife lived somewhere else, and that's where the main interest was. They, they were supposed to go there to find him. But his mother lived here in, uh, in Jacksonia, so I looked that up, and I went there, and... Uh, I did the right things. I asked the neighbor on each side if they'd seen this man before, and that was sort of superficial. It was stupid, but we did it. And uh, they said no. So I went to the door, and I knocked, and a little girl about five years old opened the door, and I said hello, and I said hello, and it realized that he had a daughter. And I said, is your daddy here? And she said, "Uh uh-huh, and opened the door. I went in. I heard the back door slam, and... They lived right next to a hill. I I went out the side door, and I saw him running up the hill. He was maybe uh, 50 feet ahead of me. By the time I got off the porch and started, he was more like 50 yards ahead of me. I ran for a ways, and I decided I'll never reach him. Uh, so I, I went back in, and I sat down, and I talked to the mother. I said, pointed out to her how important it was that he got back. Mm-hmm. And I told her I didn't care if I took him back or if he went back on his own. But he had to get back within this time, or he had been in a terribly serious problem. And so we were talking, and she was understanding, nearly in tears. And uh, I was really gentle with her. And uh, the door opened, and he walked in. He says, I'm ready to go. So I handcuffed him and took him, and I called the officer. They didn't have anybody. I'm just not supposed to make an arrest by myself, which I had done. You're supposed to have two people to make an arrest. But this was a spur of the moment, so you had to do it. Sure. If you if you met the person you were to arrest, you had to do it. But uh, if you could do it, otherwise you could have somebody else. You did that too. So I I took him down to the police station. What's what we did? And I checked him in, filled out some papers, and uh, left it at that. I notified the military they would would go and pick him up the next morning, and that was my first arrest. And this this is your first day on your own. Is that correct? First day on my own. So you made an arrest on your very first day. That's pretty good. <laughs> in class, all the way through, they said somebody in your in this class, one of you will make an arrest on your first day. You'll meet the meet somebody who has a, a warrant out or is a wanted on your very first day when you're by yourself. I turned out to be the one. Next, Marvin discusses having to investigate a rash of cases in his territory in which kids would take rocks and smash the locks at the railroad switches, and of course that causes the trains to be diverted to side rails. Sadly, both an engineer and fireman died in one incident. Now, for those of you too young to remember, the fireman is the guy who shoveled the coal into the furnace and tended to the boiler. I was there a couple of months when I got a call at midnight that a train had been diverted onto a side. It was yeah, it was diverted onto a siding, and uh, it was very serious, and I should come out. So I picked up another agent who I'd worked with before, and uh, we went out, 
got out of bed midnight or a little after, and the floodlights everywhere went down, and the engineer and the, and the brakeman were gone, but the train was sitting there. Somebody had thrown this switch. The train usually came in through about 30 or 35 miles an hour, but today they had a pickup just up the tracks a little way, and so they weren't up to speed. They were only going about 5 or 10 miles an hour. So they saw the flag, the red flag. You know, when you throw the switch, that red flag turns on. There's a round sign with a red, painted red. And they could see it even though it was dark. They could see it in the light of the locomotive. And uh, they got stopped in time that they didn't go off on the siding, but they were right at it. If they had gone off on the siding, they would have gone through the end of a brick building where people were working at 35 miles an hour. It was unbelievable what could have happened there. So basically the train stopped before it uh, actually got to the... Uh... It just got at the siding. I don't know, maybe it had been actually on the siding a little bit. It was, I don't remember exactly, but it had got stopped in time to uh, not do any damage. So anyway, there were people milling around everywhere, railroad people. I couldn't get to the engineer to interview him, but it didn't matter. The uh, funny thing is, while we were walking there, there were a couple of kids, about 14, 15, out there, too. And, and uh, I said, what are you doing out here? And he said, oh, we came to see what the commotion was about. And I said, come on, get in the car. Let's talk a while. So they they were pretty shaky, but they denied that they had anything to do with it. They just had heard the commotion and they came out. Well, I took their names and addresses, and I waited a week, and I went back to the address and talked to them again. And uh, that went on. I stretched it out to two weeks and then three weeks. About two months later, maybe a little more, I stopped there and they came over to, the, they were on the street. They came over and got in the car and they said, uh, it's, an, it's time to go. We did this. And so I said, let's find the lock because I'd scoured the brush along. The, uh, they said they'd thrown it away. We went down and we found the lock. And uh, because they had cooperated like that, I said, I will do what I can. You're not charged, but you will be turned over to the juvenile authorities here. And I said, that's the best I can do for you. Uh, And I'll try to very desperately that there won't be any federal charges because it was serious what they had done. There's a little background. Just before I got to Charlotte, somebody had done a similar thing. They had run the engine up on the ramp that they used for changing cars. There's a ramp, they shove them up there, and then the train pulls away, a different train pulls in, they let them loose or whatever, and it rolls down and hooks up. Well, somebody had sent the engine up over that, and the engineer and the tool man were killed. So they were sensitive down there about this kind of stuff. Would you believe that this was a rash going around? Kids were throwing switches all over my territory. Hard to believe. You would think, especially after there was an accident, that they'd be too terrified to do it, you know? You would think so, but I don't know why. But within a month or so, I had another switch thrown. The train had gotten stopped, and I went out, and it's a funny thing. The kids on the street, they'll tell you anything. I said, I went out, and I found a bunch of kids milling around. I said, who did this? And they said, this guy. So anyway, they had, I had five more, and I got them all solved. They were all solved, and they were all kids or young grown-ups. And uh, I had one case that really broke my heart. It was a seven-year-old boy broke the uh, lock. They'd take a rock, and they'd break the lock. The locks broke real easily. 
and I had to take the seven-year-old boy. Well, I had to, I knew it was him, and I, I had to go to his house and tell his mother, and it was one of the hardest things I could do. I had a child that age. Do you have any clue what happened to the kid, or they basically? At, at... Oh yes, everything was dropped. He didn't even go to juvenile. I told him this is not right to do anything. So I, I told the juvenile court, but the uh, uh, the authorities. But I told them, don't bother them. They're, the the mother was trying when I left. So anyway, that's the uh, train cases. I got a commendation from Hoover for it. Wow. And it was the end of the uh, rash. We didn't have any more in the whole time I was there. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. In this next section, Marvin discusses why he left Charlotte and went to Washington, D.C. to work in the Crip Lab. Now, according to my uh, estimation, this is probably around late 1955. But as you listen to this section, keep in mind how rare computers were at this time. Not only were they crazy expensive, but they had very little capability, they were very slow, they had little memory and storage, and you had to use a stack of punched IBM cards to operate them. And not only that... But Marvin was one of the few people in the world who knew how to program and operate these machines. I got to Charlotte, in, I think it was mid-April, and I left there in October, late October of the next year. I was about 18 months. The reason I had to leave, I, a new agent could not stay in the same office for two, over two years. So they, when you get to the 18-month part, they're starting moving you out. If they had to eat someplace else, they would take you out ahead of time. Since I had been trained in crypt analysis, and the crypt place had just gotten a new IBM, uh, it was it the IBM 650? We had computers there when I was there first, but they had 16 steps you could do. What can you do in 16 steps? You couldn't even make decisions. The new one, you could make decisions inside, and that was the important thing. The program was stored in the computer, and the program directed the computer what to do. It was a very big step forward from what uh, they'd had before. So this guy came in, and it was shared with the statistics. They had moved them together with the, close to the grid uh, office. And so they used it until something like two in the afternoon, and then we got it for the next four hours. The uh, 650 was an interesting machine. The program was not stored in memory. It was stored on a drum, not the type of memory you'd think of now, but it was stored on a drum, which, which rotated. When you told me about this the first time, there's a video on YouTube showing it in operation. It's it's quite interesting to watch. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh it it had the it was the big one. It had two thousand words, and he didn't talk in bytes. Then he talked in words, and uh, each word would would make an alpha or a numeric character. And to program it, 
the machine came. It was a machine. They, they gave you one card, a punched card. You fed that in, and that told the machine, read more. Then you would have your deck of your program punched into cards. All Everything about the program was punched into cards and waited behind that card. The first card in had to tell us how to handle the next card. And then it would bring in your whole program and set it up, and then it would transfer control to the last statement that came in. Uh, then the drum revolved. As it was revolving, this was being put on the drum. Every instruction you wrote by hand onto a spreadsheet, the first thing you wrote was these two digits. That's the instruction. The next four digits said what you were supposed to do. That should be like add or subtract or multiply or any of the normal operations. Or it could be a decision if something. It wasn't stated that way, but you could do a compare. And then based on the compare, if it was this way, you could go to this address. It was that way it went to that address. And all these addresses you kept track of and wrote them down on your spreadsheet so you never used the same place twice with your instruction. Anyway, it was when he started you talking about 2,000 of these instructions, it's kind of a difficult thing to keep track of. And the programming itself is you have to figure out the logic of how you can do anything. It's, it's You don't just walk in and say, I'm going to do this. Uh, like the first program I did, well, I should say that there, there were two clerks there who had already worked on the machine, and they knew how to program. They were wonderful people, but they kind of resented that they weren't chosen for supervisor. They knew better because all supervisors had to be an agent. You could not be a supervisor as a clerk. You had to be an agent to be a supervisor. So when I came in, they weren't too interested in teaching me. So they gave me the manual. It's a little over a quarter-inch thick, and that was everything that was printed about this computer. There was nothing else. So I took the book, and I decided I will try to solve a uh, binomial and uh, two unknowns and, and just do it in the computer because I didn't know anything else to work on at that point. And uh, after a week, I was programming. So when I started college in 1981, we were still using the punch cards. Oh. But within a year or two, I would say they started getting monitors where you could actually sit at a monitor. And uh, you, you still weren't using a like a, a local computer. It was still going somewhere into a main computer, you know, at the university. Yeah. I would say it's very difficult for uh, young people to even know what we're talking about, you know, how cumbersome. It, I mean, even in, in 1981, when I started college, it was very cumbersome to uh, work with computers, you know. In 81, we got our first monitor. That was uh, just at the time I was trying to sell my company. But that's another story. But anyway, I worked my way from the drum to the tapes. The next step was a tape for storage. And that was wonderful. You could actually store a lot of stuff on the drum. You, you had no storage, none to speak of. You had to share with your program. A lot of times we would get out to 1998 words used, and we needed five more. And we'd have to go back through our code and see, oh, we can make a little difference here. We can save two words. We can go here, and maybe we can if we do this a little differently, we'll get another word. So we would be filling that drum. When you think about how easy it is to use computers, I mean, the power that people just have in their pockets on their phones, you know? Oh, you have more power in your telephone probably than there was in the world back then. In the world, not just our country. 
there were a few huge computers, and that was it. And the head of IBM said he didn't know why anybody would need need one uh, beyond the industry. So anyway, it's come a long ways. Marvin next discusses the first cases that he worked on upon his arrival at the FBI cryptanalysis lab. Now, near the end of this section, he makes his first mention of working on the hollow nickel case. And if you recall from my original telling of the story, after Abel's arrest, investigators searched his apartment and they found a number of hollowed out items. And while it has been reported that a hollowed out pencil was found, in fact, there are images of it online, I do believe this may be the first time that the actual contents of that pencil have been revealed to the public. I have to tell you, it was nothing earth shattering, but remember, you heard it here first. They had a, a, a couple of uh, little uh, toads. I think one of them was uh, some prisoner was trying to sneak out a message, and uh, they would make up codes, and they were so silly, but uh, it still had to be broken to see what was going on. Then we would get cases where people would send, and including prisoners, they would send a letter. It was nice, open talk, uh, you know, I'm doing okay, and so on. But we had a total out open code. You would go through and see if you took the first letters of every sentence or the fourth letter of every word and so on. And after we had this computer now, I could write a, I wrote programs to uh, go through and you would put the text into the machine and then we would run all these different things to see it was there. And if you got a hit, it could recognize uh, dynomes that made sense and trinomes that made sense. Oh, so so explain quickly what a dynome and a trinome is. Oh, a dynome is like E-R, R-E. Those are dynomes. T-H-E is a trinome. Uh, H-E-R is a trinome. You could ask it to go through and look for those, and it would always give you then statistics of how, how much of uh, meaningful dynomes it found, meaningful trinomes, and uh, then you could look at them. Usually it wasn't meaningful. Uh, one of the cases about the able that, Code case. I think I may have mentioned that a stub pencil was picked up, but we got these 23 messages that were letters from his daughter Evelyn, and it would go starting. The roses are blooming, oh, Daddy. I wish you were here to see them, and so on. It's been a long time since you've been away, and so on. And uh, each of those had to be run through this to uh, see. It. it took me about a week to run them. It's very tedious. So anyway, it, I, did, I went through them. There was nothing to undercover in them. So they were just letters. But since they were in this pencil, they were sneaked into the country. That's the only reason they were of interest. Nick's Marvin discusses why it was so important to decipher the message that was found inside of that hollowed-out nickel. They said that because of this, they thought there was certainly a spy in New York City. And they had no other leads on them. The nickel was the only thing they had, but they were very anxious to find out if, if we had somebody was in the government, maybe. What might it be? And so it was anxious, but it, that was a, a full year. I think it was nearly a year before he hung and defected. Next, Marvin describes what he was given to decrypt his frustration with trying to figure it out and a little bit of an explanation of how he attacked uh, doing so. Now, keep in mind that he's basically doing this all manually, you know, paper and pencil. He also talks about transposition. 
And note that he keeps mentioning the key, but they couldn't extract the key because they didn't know the methodology until Hay Hannon had defected. And while we never discuss it during the interview, Marvin did write in his initial summary of the case to me that the key was based on a musical piece titled The Lost Accordion. Also note near the end of this section that he said he could solve it in four to five hours. And that was after they determined the exact steps to do so. They, they gave me an enlargement of the microfiche. And uh, that was what I had. I had, I think it was 1,100 digits in groups of five. I could tell that it looked like it was monome dynome substitution, but it didn't make any sense to do anything else with that. I figured out there was transposition, but the transposition, there was no way I should come up with any transposition that would fit. I couldn't make any strings. I couldn't get anything where dynomes and trinomes would be fitted. I was just at a stopping point. Since uh, I'm not a cryptanalysis and most people aren't, can you be a little bit more uh, detailed in what, what you were doing? Well, first I started with uh, uh, digit counts. How many zeros, how many ones, so on. So we did that, and it turned out as showing that it's probably a substitution, probably monom dynom, which means the most frequent letters get one digit, and the least uh, frequent letters get the remainder. So a Z would get uh, something done with a dynome. It would be two characters. So you use one through five or six for the A, E, I, O, and T, and so on. Just a few of those. And then the remaining letters of zero through nine would be used as the first digit in other things. So once you got to use up the zero through seven, say, or six, then you would go to seven one would be something. Seven zero would be something. Seven would never be used by itself. It was always used as a front end of a two character thing. So we'd have about five of the high five or six of the high ones, and then you'd pick up with the dynos. Well, this this comes up with a frequency that's kind of unusual because the single digits will be used much more. They're still used, but they're part of the, the dynome. If you're going to count things, there'll be a lot fewer of the sevens and eights, but there'll be many more ones and twos because they're used as themselves and are used as part of the dynome. So very early, I figured this must be a monom dynome, but it didn't, nothing figured. I worked on this all that time. It was on my desk the whole time. I shouldn't say never on my desk, but it was on my mind all the time. I would come home at night thinking, I didn't try this yet. <laughs> now, so explain what a transposition is. Okay, a, a transposition is you, you write a message in draft paper, just one letter per block, and let's say you go out... Uh, Oh, 10 characters wide. Oh, that's like 16 characters wide. And then you start the next line. So uh, all your characters are in there. All the characters would be across, and you went down as far as possible. Let's say it was 10 deep and you're 16 wide. Then you start stripping off. You take off, let's say, the first uh, column, and you write it down. Then you jump over to, based on your key, you jump over to the seventh column, and you take it down and write it next. And then you jump back to number three, maybe, right out to number 10. You had the key. The key told you how to strip it off. Then when you got done, you had your message. It was hard, but you could do it. A transposition was not overly difficult. 
substitution was the easiest thing. Simple substitution was kid stuff. That's what I'd done as a kid. But the uh, able stuff, you first put it through the substitution, and that was monom dynom substitution, tricky. Then you wrote this stuff into the draft paper, and this was long. You had 1,100 characters. How, how tired do you get just writing them in one time across? And then you get that whole thing written in, and you strip them off according to some key that you, you don't know, and then you do it again. So by the time you're done, there's absolutely no pattern. Now, wait a minute, there's still more. The nickel chase had a special way. You did not strip them off all the way across. You put a stair step in. You start maybe at the fifth character over, and you go down one, over one. And when you strip them off, you stripped off over to where you hit the stair step. Then you drop down to the next one, and then the next one, and you went out to the stair step and quit. And then you went back to the top and took the, what was left. And uh, all this was by the key. Then you did that again. It wasn't enough to do that once, which was enough, but just to do that, you what you took off there, you put, put, put back in with a different stair step. You can get an idea why it would take six or eight hours to do one, and it was a long message. This was 1,100 characters, and that was difficult. I timed myself I could do it in four or five hours after I knew it, but uh, there was a great chance of a mistake. And that's what happened with the, uh, the case where the, the guy worked with me but wasn't on my team. He, he and uh, I sort of thought alike, and the next day when we were going to start over, he said, oh, wait a minute, I want, I want to try this. And he worked on it about noon, he said, I think we might be making progress. I had got the key. And so he went over and he was working with a translator, Mrs. McMahon. I remember her name. She was from a country near Russia, and they deciphered it. And, and this is uh, Chauncey Seafelt that you mentioned uh, in, in what you wrote? Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I wanted him to get credit in here. At first, I wasn't going to use any real names. I was just going to say A, B, and so I But uh, didn't make sense after I wrote a bunch, and they're all they're all dead with Chauncey. From the time that he defected and gave that information to uh, the investigators, how long did it take you to figure out, you know, what the message said? Oh, I think it was less than a week. Wow! They they rushed that to me, and uh, when I saw what I had, I figured out I, I can uh, if I give three possibilities to each of the forty some people in the. And I was given full throttle, take everybody except the, uh, his secretary and him, and give them each three of these, and that would be just... This is your boss, uh, Downing? Yeah, I wouldn't give him any, of course, but but his secretary did not get any, but the rest of the people were all fair game. So everybody had some, and uh, it came out just about enough to do it. I finished, the, I did the extra one myself, uh, extra couple of myself by staying over. But uh, it was very disappointing I hate to say it that way, but we had a screw-up guy. He sat right in front of me. He was a—he was always goofy. He didn't—he never did things right. But it turns out that he's the one that got the the right combination. And that's why Chauncey uh, and I say, if anybody's going to make a mistake, it'll be him. So he, we picked on his first, and we looked at him, and for some reason I don't remember why, we thought this one combination looked the best. And it turned out to be the best. And for the life of me, I can't remember why we picked that one. 
so basically you uh, your whole team went through everything and there was no they no one was able to crack it that's right we missed the whole whole day long a long day for some who stayed over to work and we had missed the terminations I forget there was a thousand and some terminations I think uh, and I don't know how I figured out there were that many terminations but somehow I knew it had to be one of these. Yeah, and I, I cannot remember. It's been a little time. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> like three quarters of a century, I guess. Were you disappointed that there really wasn't anything useful in the message? No, I really wasn't. I had the feeling this was a backup uh, system for uh, communication. The real system of communication was a one-time code pad. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, so they use it once and toss it out. Yeah, the, whoever is sending the message has a pad exactly like yours, and you have a pad, and you take a, he sends you something, you take off the top of your pad, which is upside down, so he can't read it before it's taken off. And then you use it, and you throw it away. So now the nickel's finally dis, uh, decoded, and you didn't use any programs to do this, am I correct? No, right after we finished the decoding, uh, my team and I, we, we knew we couldn't get the program into our computer. It was just going to be way too much. So we talked about it, and we figured out that if we used one program to just find the key and one program to do the transposition and then one, one program to do the substitution, we might get it into the machine. And we may have to go to four because we may have to do the transpositions in two separate ones. Anyway, we each one took a part, and I took the part of finding the key. And it turns out I think it was the easiest. <laughs> then uh, Dean Ernest took the tough one, the transposition, and Lauren Gill took the uh, substitution. And in about two or three days, we had a program that we could test on the nickel case. And sure enough, it worked. It found the code. It, it found the key. It, it decoded everything. And each program was one of these uh, nail biters where you get up to 190, uh, 1995, and am I going to make it? And you, you go back through and find the place you can do something a little simpler. Yeah, and, sa- and just save a little bit of memory. Just save a, a word here and there, and you could make it. Uh, it was difficult coding, but it was a wonderful challenge. I think all three of us took it as this is the greatest opportunity we'll have in our lives is to make this program work. But now after this, there were no messages, right? No messages. I don't know. It wasn't very long. Uh, I don't think it was about a, a week or two. They it went up the ladder that we had this. Uh, and uh, the top people, they always communicate, NSA and, and we worked together very closely. I was over to NSA a time or two or three, and uh, we, if we decoded something, we'd hand carry it over there, or if we were picking up something, we'd hand carry it. So they gave us a this shuffle of papers of, of the uh, messages they had picked up, and they didn't have time to work on, or they didn't want to work on, or for some reason, they just didn't come up. And they thought they were mostly different, so there was no one to concentrate on. But about 10,000 and a few and so that came over, and I got those on Wednesday, and I was told I was to have, have it all decoded by the following Monday. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because you, right, you were called into uh, your boss's office at Downing. Is that correct? Yes. I was so happy to go in there because we had the program already working, 
and I'd figured out that we could have them all done in 10 days. I, I just thought, this is wonderful. He'll be really pleased. <laughs> and before I got to say anything, he said, I want them done by my, a Monday morning. I want the report on my desk. And I, I said, started to say something, and he said, I told you I want them on my desk Monday morning. And it went downhill from there. You already had calculated. You knew how long it took to do each card. Yeah, I said I'd be done on Friday, the next Friday, and we were done at between 11.30 and 12 on the next Friday. I didn't think I'd be that accurate. In fact, I gave him the optimistic one, and it turned out that that worked. Sometimes it didn't take a whole two minutes to find the key or, or find out you weren't going to find the key. Sometimes you get it. I mean, it was a short message that came through faster, turns out. So we got done in time, but he would not listen so you're given 10,000 messages, which is kind of crazy. And they have to be put into punch cards, am I correct? Absolutely. And that was the first thing I tried to tell him. We can't get them all punched by them. And he wouldn't listen to that. And this was with all the Stanos and the uh, T-Punch. All, all those people were all turned free on it. And we couldn't get them done punched. They were, we were just about up to them quite often on the, running the machine versus what they had punched. It was so obvious that it couldn't be done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, pretty much along the whole way, there were no matches. It wasn't until the very end. Is that correct? That's the funny thing is I was really depressed. We were down to about 11 o'clock on Friday morning, and we only had maybe 20 or 30 to go. And I thought, oh, we're not going to get anything. You call this for nothing. And suddenly it punched out to her. What happens is it punched out the charge on the computer for us to print. And we took that little deck over and rushed to the printer and printed it out. And sure enough, there was stuff we could read. And we got it printed up, and as fast as I could, I took it into Mr. Downing. And he just took it without comment. So, And we never talked about the fact that I had missed his deadline by a week. He never mentioned it again, except he, he told me I'm not a team player after that. So you wrote that uh, hey, Hannon kind of couldn't remember how it worked, but he gave you enough information to figure it out. And you believe that he actually knew the whole method. And why is that? Absolutely, because when we deciphered that second message, it was the instructions of how to get home. And he had followed those instructions to Paris. How else would he do it if he didn't have the, if he hadn't known how to do that? He was still playing a little bit of a game. But anyway, we got there, but he gave us enough.
In the summary that Marvin initially sent me, he wrote the following about Hey Hannon, quote, With respect to the nickel coat, he said he did not remember all the details. He did provide sufficient information that led to decrypting the message. Later in his summary, he writes, quote, We rushed the cards to the IBM 407 printer. It contained instructions in a mix of English and Russian on how Hey Hannon was to go back to Moscow. A classic spy story, a stopover in Paris where he'd meet up with his next contact with some coded greeting exchange, etc. You'll wear a specified flower in your lapel. At a certain place, you'll meet a man who will say dot, dot, dot. So let's dive back into the conversation and we'll pick up where Marvin describes the discovery of a stamp-sized pad that was hidden inside of a paperweight. And then uh, you also talked about in Abel's apartment, I think they found a large paperweight or something like a paperweight. Well, they found this paperweight that was oh, about two and a half inches long, maybe three. It was curved. It was like a uh, an oval, but you had bent the ends in. So it was just a graceful curve, I think mahogany, beautiful little thing. It was just the right size for a paperweight. And uh, it had a seam where the two ends were, were glued together. And that was a giveaway that we thought that it was made in two pieces and it might be something. And sure enough, Chauncey and I went over to the uh, photo department where they had red light. A room with just nothing but a red light. And the, the guy there laid the thing down on the floor and you could hit with a hammer and it would break down. After two or three thumps, it fell apart and out fell this little patch of stuff that was the size of a postage stamp. And I can't remember whether it was a quarter or an inch thick maybe five sixteens. And then we could turn on the light because this is not something, some film to be developed. We had to do that in the dark with red light, and then we turned on the light and looked at it, and we all recognized it. This each, it looked like the top was just a thin layer. Uh, you could skim off your thumb if, if you just brushed over it. It would come off, and you could take it off in such a way that you could photograph it and blow it up. And then when you were done, you could tighten your fingers and roll it up, and you could hardly see the little bit that turned into not as big as the head of a pen, and just throw it in a wastebasket. We made up one-time pads. That was my one of my jobs, was to make up one-time pads. I would run off the pages, and I made up the random, truly random characters. They weren't make-believe. They weren't a pattern like most random numbers are. But I... Uh, I had a deck of about a thousand cards of old messages, and I shuffled those and ran them in through the sorter, and then I shuffled them again and ran them through sorting on different columns until they were completely jumbled. And then I would run tests on them to see can I find any patterns left after all of this. And after all this, so that we could use those, use that, print that stuff for our, our one-time pads for the field offices and for the uh, legal attaches in the in the embassies. Uh, we, I would make up the papers, and uh, Dean Ernest knew how to bind them. They were sealed with some kind of a wax, and uh, usually not you could not get to the first page in there without really destroying the thing. And that was sent throughout the field offices and. Uh, that's what they used if they wanted to have some super secret sent back to the bureau, to headquarters. You also wrote about uh, a large wooden screw that they had to get out of the concrete. So I wanted to talk about that one. Hey, Hanan said that there had been a message that had been put out. I don't know if it had been left for him or if it had been something he had left for them and hadn't been picked up. 
where there was a tragedy, this man at the bottom of some steps someplace in New York. He, he gave the location, the street name, and what it was. So the agents from New York went out there and looked, and the thing had been redone. They had rebuilt the step and, and repatched everything, so it looked like it was just brand-new stuff. They got uniforms for the work people in, in New York City, went out there with a jackhammer and other tools and broke open this new concrete, and they found the screw. I saw it. It was about two inches long, maybe maybe two and a half, rusty. The end of it was bent. It was really something you throw away quickly. And they, they took hold of it, and with pliers, you could turn the head of the screw off. It would unscrew from within the screw. And then in there was another microfilm. And it was a something to do with the, uh, well, they never told me completely. They just said it was not of interest. Well, with the beauty of the Internet, I found the answer. And it says this on the FBI website. Quote, in one of the dead drops mentioned by Hay Hannon, a hole in a set of cement steps in Prospect Park, FBI agents found a hollowed-out bolt. The bolt was about two inches long and one-fourth inch in diameter. It contained the following typewritten message. Nobody came to meeting either 8th or 9th as I was advised he should. Why? Should he be inside or outside? Is time wrong? Place seems right. Please check. It continues, The bolt was found on May 15, 1957. It had been placed in the dead drop about two years previously, but by a trick of fate, a repair crew had filled the hole in the stairs with cement, entombing the bolt and the message it contained. Boy, Marvin's uh, memory is incredible, isn't it? Anyway, let's return to the conversation. So uh, at some point, someone had to testify at Abel's trial, and originally it was going to be you. And the fact that you did this kind of uh, you know, prep work made, meant that you couldn't go. So why don't you, so why don't you explain that? Yeah, right. They, they, sometimes in the field, the agent would go in and testify, and they did a, a judge who was not very friendly, and the, the defendant's attorney would be nasty. And they'd go off way off of the real track, but the judge would allow it. They were afraid that if we got a judge like that, and we did get an attorney like that, incidentally, the defense attorney was not very nice, even though the bridge of like, the bridge of spies the bridge of, made him sound like a hero. He was anything but the hero. The bureau and the justice department already had decided to not do anything nasty. They would keep able for a, a trading point. I never knew that there were some of the details that were in that movie. I don't know whether it was made up to make it more interesting or whether it was farts. But anyway, the attorney was very unpleasant to the agents and to the DOG attorneys. We did not think much of him. But he was glorified in the movie, and that's okay with me. So, you know, they needed someone to testify, and you couldn't do it, so you had to train somebody else. Is that correct? Well, yes, because... Uh, it wasn't just the one-time pads or other codes that we used for things that were sensitive but not super. So I knew how those were made. I made them up for the all the field offices and for the legal uh, attaches. And uh, they, I didn't dare tell them tell anybody that. Even that level was dangerous. And I, they would love to know how the one-time pads were made, even though it wouldn't help them. 
So, so you had to train somebody else, though, to go testify. So when they decided I should not testify, they wanted to get somebody with the most interesting personality. And so this tough guy from New York Leonard, was the, their, ter- their choice, and they sent him down to stay at Washington until we felt confident that he could testify. It turned out to be two weeks. But I would teach him one part. I had to teach him substitution. I had to teach him transposition. I had to teach him how the stair step worked and how the next stair step worked and how he got the key. I had to teach him all of that so any question he'd be asked, he knew exactly how it was done. And it took us a while. And so each of those was a topic, and that took about the first week just to, to get that much done. And then we started on uh, putting him on the stand, questioning him, and then go back and reteach something. And by Friday, we were doing a good job, I thought, and he said, I'm ready. And uh, that's how it worked. And I was so relieved because I did not want to go testify. So uh, he he was kind of chosen because he, he knew this stuff that you taught him, but he really knew nothing else, so he couldn't reveal any secrets. Is that correct? I, he had no. He didn't have any idea about anything outside of what I taught him. He he. By this time, he knew about monom dynamo. He knew about uh, some substitution, but he didn't know anything beyond that. We didn't teach him anything that he didn't have to know. He did a good job. Um, and and clearly uh, Abel was convicted. So, yes, but he was being held in a pretty nice prison. You know, he never he never gave away anything. As often as they went back, the attorneys went back and questioned him. He never gave an inch. He was true to his country, uh, a real patriot. And I think he knew if he held the line that he would get home sometime. And at this point, I need to admit that I made an error in my original telling of the story. I wrote, quote, On June 5, 1957, FBI cryptographer Michael G. Leonard was able to use information obtained from Hayhannon to decode the microfilm's code. Well, as Marvin just explained, Leonard definitely was not the one who decoded the message. In fact, he had nothing to do with it. He was just a stand-in at trial for Marvin and his team. Well, that ruse clearly worked since all of my sources indicated that Leonard was the one who decrypted the message. Well, that's probably a good place to close part two of my interview with Marvin. I still have quite a bit of the audio that needs to be edited, so I'm not sure if there'll be one or two more segments to this. My hunch is one more episode should do it. And without going into great detail at this point, I can tell you that he still has one good FBI story to tell, and that involved everyone's fear of contradicting FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. He'll also discuss why he left the FBI, his work programming missile launches for the military, and this is long before flight simulators. He'll talk about his patents, and of course, the giant theater organ he installed in his Virginia home. In fact, he sent me a CD recording of it last week, and I'll play his favorite song from the album for you. Anyway, stay tuned for part three of The Cryptanalyst. And I hope to have that edited within the next couple of weeks. On another note, you may not be aware of this, but this Christmas marks the 200th anniversary of the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, which of course most people know better as Twas the Night Before Christmas. And author Pamela McCall, who recently released the incredible book Twas the Night, The Art and History of the Classic Poem, she'll be stopping by on November 30th to discuss everything and anything about the poem. 
She spent the last 10 years writing this book, so she really knows all about the subject. I should add that I attended a talk that she gave at our local historical society a few weeks ago, so I know she has a great story to tell, and I hope to get that edited and posted you know, sometime during the first week of December. Anyway, I'll end it there. Thanks as always for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.